You're about to listen to an episode where we talk about hunting. So you might be interested in my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. To get it, go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. From this guide, you will learn how to get a deer hunting license, obtain a firearm certificate, and get permission to hunt deer on a chosen piece of land. Everything is explained in simple language and in easy-to-follow steps. Get my free guide on how to get started in deer hunting in Ireland. Simply go to deerhunting.ie or click on the link in the show notes. This is episode 152. Today I talk with Philippe Jaeger. Philippe is a hunting journalist in France and for the last two decades, for over two decades, he's traveling the world for hunting reportage. What is interesting is that Philippe started as an anti-hunter. In his youth, he was a member of a radical anti-hunting organization. And so you can imagine this is like a pretty interesting transition. I met Philippe in April on the International Journalist Symposium on Sustainable Use of Wildlife Resources. And his talk was very interesting, especially when he was talking about anti-hunting organizations and all these social aspects, how the hunting is being perceived. And I just knew I got to have him on the podcast. So that day is today. And during our conversation, we talked obviously about uh, his transition from anti-hunter to hunter, pretty hardcore hunter. And But we talk about more important aspects as well as how to talk to non-hunters, how to represent hunting, how to talk about hunting, how to make sure that people understand hunting. We talk about photos, hunting photos, photos on social media. We talk about trophy hunting. Very interesting subjects for everybody who is a hunter or even non-hunter, but is interested by the interface between hunting and non-hunting and conservation. So I'm sure you will enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed talking with Philippe on this podcast and earlier offline, uh, because as you can imagine, we had a, uh, a few conversations. So uh, I'm really happy to be able to bring you that episode. And before I let you enjoy it, as always, uh, just one call to action. Subscribe to my newsletter. If you're interested in stuff that we talk about here on Tommy's Outdoors, Conservation and Science, which is mainly conservation and science, but also human-wildlife interactions, which is hunting and fishing and in general, the overlap of all those subjects, much more than just subjects that we discuss on the podcast or in the newsletter. So subscribe to my newsletter, newsletter.tommysoutdoors.com. The link is in the description of the show. And actually, what I would like to ask you is like, get into the description of this show on whatever podcast app you're using and just explore it. There's a link to a newsletter. There are links to my social media if you like to follow me on social media and um, many more. Um, also, you can support the podcast by buying me a coffee. All those things are in the description of the show. So go in there and uh, click on the link, right? So now, without any further delay, Philippe Jaeger from Anti-Hunter to Advocate.
Philippe. Welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to see you and talk to you again. Hi, Tommy. It's a pleasure. Some people might know that we met uh, just a lot, just last week on the International Journalist Symposium yes. on Conservation and Sustainable Use. And you shared with us quite remarkable story of your journey in, in hunting. You, you started as an anti-hunter. And then you transition to hunting journalist who who traveled for 20 years for hunting reportage. So can you share with us that story? How how does this happen that you were anti-hunter first and then you transitioned back to to hunting side? In the very, very beginning, I'm I'm born in a in a family where nobody's hunting and nobody's anti-hunting. We were just natural. Um like most of the people actually. And then at some stage, I had a bad meeting with a, with a hunter who, who tried to force me to leave the forest where I was working with my dog, where it's skiing, to be precise. I was across skiing with my dog, and uh, he went out of his car and was shouting with me, asking me to leave the place, and so on. So you can imagine that when you have such a meeting with somebody, it's not the best way to be a friend with him. And um, later on, I was contacted by some people that they were a member of uh, anti-hunting organization. And uh, I jumped into the this kind of movement because when you are a teenager, well, you don't really think about all the facts uh, you, you are doing sometimes. So, um, for a few years, I was uh, really active in that kind of movement. And uh, later, I, I went to agricultural school, where I had the opportunity to meet some people working for the Ministry of Environment in France. Uh, they were involved in hunting and uh, sustainable use uh, subjects, uh, scientific works about ducks, migratory birds, and so on. And uh, so my my mind began to change regarding hunting. And uh, then I went into the bird watching um, subject, which is uh, still one of my hobby. I have not a lot of time to do it, but well, I'm I'm still very very uh, uh, interested in bird life and so on. Uh, and then I began to work. And as a sales manager, I had some clients, they were hunters. And uh, when you have clients face-to-face, uh, -face, you can't really tell them, hey guys, I hate you because you are hunters. <laughs> so <laughs> you have to be a little bit diplomatic sometimes, and uh, and uh, especially when they are your clients. And though I, I, they proposed me to, to, to join them, on, a, on some hunts, and um, it was my real first contact with uh, the hunting world. And um, well, I was 20, 22, 23, something like that. So you are a little bit less nervous than when you are a teenager and you begin to, to think about what you are doing and what you are thinking. And so I discovered something that was not so terrible at the end. And then step by step, I went regularly with them to the forest. We had some activities like building high seats, 
uh, uh, land management and so on. And after one year, I decided to get my hunting license, which is not really complicated in France, but nevertheless, you have an exam. And uh, it's the way I began my uh, hunter's life. You mentioned that you were influenced as a young teenager by, the, by those anti-hunting groups. And obviously, it's it's that age where people are getting quite easily influenced by, by different things. Do you feel like hunting... Uh, in general, hunters and hunting are doing pretty poor job at at also influencing and kind of like a encouraging young people to you know get into hunting because I guess this is a problem across the world that 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 age of hunters are going up and up and up and we're not really getting new people or young people into hunting. You have two ways of considering uh, your question and my answer. On one hand. It would be easy to say, yes, hunters are doing a bad job regarding communication with youngsters and so on. And the facts are, are really clear. Uh, you mentioned it. Uh, the average age is going up. The number of hunters almost all over the world, and specifically in France, is decreasing very strongly. So, yes, for sure, there is a problem. But on the other hand, I am the perfect example that somebody who gets on one side can jump on the other side later in his life. It means you can be anti-hunting and then pro-hunting, but it means also that you can be pro-hunter and then <laughs> get to the other side. Um, there, there are a lot of examples. Uh, you can find people that change uh, the mind. You can you can be a meat eater, carnivore, and then getting into the vegan and, and the other way. Okay, nothing is really, I think in life, nothing is really fixed. People would like that everything is like that in a, in a square, but thanks God it's not like that. And movements are always possible. But nevertheless, to be back to your question, yes, we have a problem um, about how hunting and hunters, because this can be also a point of discussion, there is something different between hunting and hunters. But for sure, today in the modern modern uh, civilization, uh, most of the time hunting is not really uh, the, the most fancy thing you can, you can do on the weekend or while you are on a hobby. Uh, nevertheless, um, I think everything can change very fast, and especially now in our uh, modern world, uh, thanks to the technology, for example, and communication way of, of, of uh, social media, for example, and so on. If you jump into that kind of technology, I think it can change things very fast. And for sure, uh, I speak about France now. Um, hunters have lost a lot of time doing that. We have other examples, for example, in Germany, where uh, hunters and hunters' federation have done a green job since 20 years now. And the situation there is much more comfortable for hunters and hunting than it is in France. In France, um, 
for a long time and still now our, our hunters federation thinks that because we are a lot of people we are a little bit less than one million in france which is uh, the the country in europe where you have the most hunters um they still believe that it's enough to be approximately one million to influence law and to influence people we have the proof today that it was a wrong strategy and the wrong way of meaning and things are beginning to change slowly because it's a very traditional world hunting you know it's uh, i don't know more traditional traditional way of thinking than, than hunters most of the time so it takes time um it should not take too much time because i think we are getting into the red zone now but when you when you see what is going on you have still young people coming to the hunting um activity and more and more women for example you have more and more people coming from like me a family where nobody is hunting people living in the in in a town not in the countryside at the end hunting what is hunting the first um, reason which uh, takes you out uh, to the field is to to get meat in your fridge it's the, the the only the only reason which you can uh, uh, find when you look at what you are doing out in the field with a rifle or with a shotgun it's because you you want to get some meat and game meat is the best meat you can eat and it's local so you 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 have the best arguments with the the game meat the venison as we say to gain people into the hunting world but as i said last week when we spoke together you need to be honest with people if you want to win people and if you want them to at least understand what we are doing and why not join the hunting world you need to be honest and the best way to be honest when you kill an animal is to eat the meat and to share the meat with other people once you do that as long as you are speaking with honest people also they can't tell you it's bad to go hunting they, they still if you are vegan people for example they still uh, can tell you no 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 i don't want to eat meat and i don't want to kill animals that's fine i'm fine with that you know you we, we need to accept and the goal of hunting today and hunters federation for example should not be to get more and more and more people into the hunting boat but just to be accepted we are a minority we will still be a minority it's hopefully not 80 million people will hunt <laughs> otherwise everything uh, will disappear because nature because nature and natural resources can't feed all the world population today we need still agriculture and farms but nevertheless just to be accepted and that the other people the non-hunters look at us like normal people uh, reasonable people that care about nature that care about biodiversity this should be our goal today you mentioned honesty 
and, and this is something like man that resonated with me so much because part of what I was uh, saying many times is that I don't like when hunters are you know looking for these like a uh, fake reasons they are hunt there or, or just like oh it is all about conservation or it is all about controlling invasive species or this is all about agricultural damage and you know like someone said like if if you're so worried about the you know uh farming practices of your farmer friends and you ask them how you can help they will give you a shovel not ask you to go and hunt on their land so i i i, I totally agree with you that that this this honest element of it is is important because then people who are anti-hunting they can easily see through this like oh, yeah you know you're just trying to kind of like make stuff up it's not really what you're after and and so would you agree that we need to more of like a seeking acceptance for hunting based on here i say recreational aspect of it rather than coming up with the ideas like oh this is all for conservation we are all conservationists like no you're not right it's like you're conservationist only because it's like within the framework that feeds the money to conservation or something like that but you're actually when you're taking your rifle you're not going you know do conservation work you're doing that for fun you're doing that for meat you're doing that for other reasons so do you think this is the angle we should take when talking about hunting for sure for, for sure, 100%. You know, I told you I was bird watcher, and then I went into the hunting, and still I am bird watching. Um, it's not something which is opposite. But I will never say to anybody, I, I go hunting because I love nature. Um, I love to listen to the birds when the sun is rising in the morning, and blah, blah, blah. That's all fake. I, I, I go hunting because when I'm a bird watcher, I'm spectator of nature. You are sitting, you know, like, like when you go to the cinema or to the theater, you are sitting in the, in the room and other people are standing in front of you and they do the show. And that's why probably also I went someday at, in, in the hunting because something, something was missing. You know, I, I was working around with my bino and uh, I was counting birds, I was ringing birds, I, I was doing so many things, but something was still missing because I was not an actor. And uh, when I walk around on my forest with my rifle on my shoulder, seeking for a roe deer or a wild boar or a red deer that I want to kill, I'm an actor. I'm, I'm an actor. I'm, I'm really part of the game which you can't be when you have just a bino around your neck. And that's the big difference between the hunters and the other people. We are killing animals and we have a good reason to do so because we want to eat them or we want to share the meat with other people. I, for sure, I, I, I plant trees, I plant a lot of things. I, I, I do everything what is possible on my hunting estate that the place is good for nesting birds, for bats, for flowers, for whatever you want. That's also part of hunting. I don't say that we don't do it. But to do that, you don't need to be a hunter. As you say, you can grab a shower, dig a hole in the ground, plant a tree or two or three or 
300. You don't need to be a hunter to do that. But to kill an animal, you need to be a hunter. And that's the difference. You mentioned like when we were talking uh, last week, you you also, you know, it was kind of like a surreal experience because you were picking up on all those things that are kind of like I so often uh, talked on my podcast and the other people. So that's what I was saying. Like, yeah, I, I got I to gotta get you on the podcast. You picked up on the often purposeful confusion or or, or by, by media, by mass media, often co- purposely confusing the term hunter and the term poacher and saying, and obviously during the, during our conversation, that discussion went into very interesting um, directions that, you know, in a, in a countries uh, like the, which are not, you know, as developed as France or Ireland or, or UK, then that really difference between hunter and a poacher becomes really blurry because you know who who is who and like you talk about indigenous hunting and so on and so forth but in a in a in the realities that we that you and i live with and in and in 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 most of the listeners of this podcast um there is pretty much clear difference who a poacher is and who a hunter is and I, I just, I just want to hear some of your thoughts on this. Um, do you, do you think this is done on purpose by, you know, papers and and media outlets confusing these two terms and and that way putting hunters in a bad light by, you know, describing poachers as hunters? Or do you think that there is an element of um, genuine misunderstanding and and probably a room for improvement uh, by hunting organizations to, again, challenge those uh, those quotes or those articles and say, like, hey, that's not actually hunting. That's poaching. That's something else. We didn't mention it still now, but uh, as you know, I'm a hunting journalist. So since 25 years, I write articles for hunting magazines. So my readers are mainly hunters. So as a journalist, uh, I know the power of words. It's a real power. And I know the sense of words, the semantic, as we say in French, I don't know if it's the same in English. When you use a word, it means something. And uh, a hunter is a hunter, a poacher is a poacher. It is not the same. If I tell you that uh, a tomato is blue, you will tell me, Philip, you have a problem with your eyes. So when you use the word hunter for a poacher, it's not the way you should work as a journalist. So for sure, when I, when I hear, and it's very often in France, we have uh, global media, they, they regularly, they speak about the elephants in Africa, the bears in whatever country which are killed by hunters no well regarding the elephant and sometimes it can be hunters because in some places in africa it's completely legal to 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 hunt an elephant but most of the time when they speak about that it's they speak about poachers that work for chinese guys who want the tusk for the chinese medicine or for the rhino and so on so the, the, the power of world again is very important and we should not as hunters and as hunters organizations we should not leave one millimeter of freedom to those journalists 
or to those people who pretend to be journalists that use the wrong word to speak about a real subject. We should not leave them one millimeter of space, and unfortunately, we do. And that's why today also you have a. It's so easy for those people, you know, to to make bad words about hunters, which in fact are poachers. Then uh, another point about that subject. I was uh, regularly in Africa and in different countries for my job to 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 write reportage and to make movies, and. Um, for sure. When I, last time when I was in Tanzania, for example, uh, while we were out in the bush hunting, we, 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 we saw torches. And it was very strange because uh, the guy, first, the, the first uh, thing our, our uh, hunting guide told me, he told me, be ready to shoot. I was not expecting to shoot on a poacher on a human being while I was hunting before. So as a European guy, I was quite surprised. Then I could understand later that yes, in some cases, um, the fact to hit into a poaching group can be quite dangerous and they can shoot at you. So your life is in danger. So. But first, I was completely shocked, and uh, and then we stayed where we were, and they went out with a with a scout, a wildlife scout. They catched the guy who was poaching, and they took him back to us. It was a, a man. He was approximately I don't know, sixty years old. He was thin like my finger, you know, because he never had something to eat and. Uh, Obviously, obviously, he was living there. Okay, <laughs> he he he, bo- he was born there. He was living there, and probably he will die there. And he was poaching because that guy had nothing to eat. So then you have a, a big uh, question, you know: <clears throat> Is that guy a poacher? If you consider the legal frame, yes, he is a poacher because he is killing animals, and he is not allowed by the government to do so. On that place. But then you have also to consider the fact that this guy is living here and he, he has probably more rights than I as a French hunter to kill an animal there and to eat it and to feed his family. So it's very complicated, you know, it's a subject which is very, very complicated. You have to be very careful before just telling ah, those bad people and blah, 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 blah. For sure, when we speak about criminal groups, with heavy uh, weapons paid by, I will say Chinese, but uh, if Chinese listen to me, they will, they will think I'm a very guy, bad guy and I hate Chinese, but no. Um, but it's a fact, you know, uh, in, in Africa, a lot of uh, Chinese organizations, and everybody knows that it's not just in discovering, you know, in, in, it's not a scoop that I give you, they, they kill animals for the Chinese medicine or for illegal uh, traffic of elephant tusks, for example. And they, and they leave the animals, the carcasses there. They don't, the meat is not used. They just want to take the tusks of the bone and so on. So this is another thing, you know, and for sure you have to be against that kind of poaching. But I would just try to 
be a little bit careful about two ways and two different reasons and two different profiles of those guys who do that. If you do that to feed your family, for sure it's still illegal, but sometimes we shouldn't think about why those people need to do that in 2023, while we are hunting buffalo and we pay uh, thousands of dollars to do that. So just, I don't take position, but just that people understand that sometimes we should not react immediately and just think about why. 100%, you know, and I think this is something that applies in general to all those conversations that people tend to jump to conclusions very easily and then be angry about it. It's like, oh, this, this, that, uh, while, like you said, it is, it is, the picture is very complex and, and, you know, it, it, sometimes there are no easy answers to, to all those things. Um, listen, I want to come back a little bit to something that we're that we talked before, and um, even in 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 Paris on the conference, we heard that um, I, I'm going to paraphrase. It's not direct quote, but paraphrase that in hunting, we obviously I think everyone is aware of the problems with the social acceptance uh, for hunting, and we. As a hunters, as a hunting organizations, we have this idea that okay, we're gonna present the data, we're gonna present the facts and data, and here's data, here's the facts, here's like all these things, and they don't really seem to work. And like, if anyone has any interest in in you know neurobiology and how our brain works, knows that emotion works well, wins every single time when it's confronted with a rational brain, factual brain. Emotions always trumps that. So I think that it was like part of what you said as well. Like how are we gonna how are we gonna explain the the emotions r- related to what's going on? How are we gonna start using emotional stories to to talk about hunting and to explain hunting to to you know, people who are you know either neutral, or they're maybe start you know are there a little bit of anti-hunting? They don't understand that, you know, like how because like in fairness, all the anti-hunting message is highly emotional, uh, right? All oh, these poor animals, furry babies, you know, quotes like that. So how how it is possible? How would you? What would be your advice to start using that uh, language or maybe? how to convey the emotions behind hunting and behind motivation to, to go and hunt? That's not an easy uh, question, Toby, because uh, an emotion is something uh, each human being feels different. Some people will think that the sunrise is very emotional, and other ones will think that the sunset is much, much more emotional than the sunrise. That's just an example. We speak about almost the same thing, but you can feel it different. I think that most of the hunters uh, are feeling what they do differently. The best example is that some hunters have no problem hunting zebra, for example, in Africa. We have millions of them. It's a hunting species, no problem, huntable species. 
uh, and, and, and some hunters will tell you, never in my life I refer to them. Uh, closer to us, um, some hunters have no problem uh, doing what we call a cutting plan, which is a number of animals you need to shoot each year, and that's the forestry administration most of the time that tells you you have to shoot X numbers of animals, including males, females, and young. Some hunters uh, will have no problem to kill males, but others will tell you, I don't want to shoot females, I don't want to shoot young ones. So it's, it's really a question of people, you know? What is important, uh, I think, in the, in the communication with other people is uh, to, to make them understand that uh, killing an animal is not something you do like, uh, what can I say, uh, when you are breathing. When you kill an animal, you have to think about what you do, how you do, and uh, why you do it. It's a, it's a, it's really deep, you know. Um, I remember the first time uh, when I was beginning. As I told you, I, I didn't grow up in a family of hunters. So for me, the first time I killed uh, an animal, wow, it was it was terrible. And it's still. I'm hunting now since more than thirty years, and uh, each time when I kill an animal, it's it's shaking me inside, you know. And it's a lot of, I, I almost would say stress, because uh, you have a so great responsibility doing that. Uh, it's unbelievable. So you have to be 300% focused on what you do. And uh, you need to, to manage completely the, the situation, you know. You, 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 you manage the gear you use. You have to, to be sure about uh, the training you had before. You, you, you need to, to take all the measures in front so that once you are in the situation of pulling the trigger, all the chances are on your side to kill quick and efficient. And, and then from that point, once the animal is dead on the floor, then you can release your emotions and your feelings. That's, you, you, it's, it's very complicated to explain that, you know, because uh, some people will tell you, well, if you are not able to, to do it, so leave it. Uh, but nevertheless, I know a lot of hunters, uh, they are really shaped about what they do when they kill an animal, you know. Some people are crying, uh, even sometimes, because they have so, many, so much emotions. But um, personally, uh, because I can't speak about what the other is feeling, but personally, uh, yes, it's a, it's a huge responsibility to do that for me. It's a huge privilege because not everybody can run around in the forest with a rifle killing animals. So it's a big responsibility regarding the other people. So yes, uh, just to, to, to finish with that, um, everybody feels different, but it's, believe me, it's something which is unbelievable. I don't know another hobby which takes you so far in responsibility. Um, Philip, there are two other things that I would like to get your views on. Um, you probably heard uh, about the, the uh, quite a strong movement now to ban imports of trophies from Africa in the UK. 
some discussions are in the US and California and you know again this is goes goes back to the honesty and uh, I just I just want your your opinion uh, about this so common view is that if those bans will go ahead and there will be it will be prohibited to import trophies hunting trophies from Africa to European countries that will negatively impact the conservation uh, livelihoods of people in Africa etc 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 and on the other hand the argument which I think is a fairly strong argument is like oh if you're really going on a hunt for the experience, for being part of nature, for participations, from all those things, why would, you know, the prohibition of bringing that bone back stop you from doing that? You will, you still can get, you know, 80% of your experience or, or 100% of your experience minus the trophy you're bringing back home. So I am just wondering of your view, is that the legitimate concern? Is that concern not really true and those hunters will still go on a hunt? Because, you know, in fairness, if you're paying 120 grand to shoot an elephant, you are pretty dedicated. Uh, unless that 120 grand is something that, you know, you happen to be very rich and it's not, not an issue. But usually these are very dedicated people today and they're going to on those bucket list hunts. So curious of your view on that. Is it really you know, only smokescreen that this is all about participation in nature and all that, but really you're after this, you know, trophy or these concerns are a little bit, uh, you know, exaggerated because those hunters will still be going to Africa and hunting and, and paying money and doing all those things. It's a complicated subject. And again, you have a, a lot of ways to consider the subject. First of all, I will do something that is never done when we speak about uh, trophy pen, trophy import pen. Ask Africans, for example, or people living in the countries where you, you can have hunting tourism, ask them what they think about that. It should be the first step before we discuss about anything else. The very, very first step. Those animals are living there. They belong to them. They, they live with the animals. And nobody takes care about what they think. It's really surprising. And it's even more surprising when you consider the fact that those who support... Um, projects like import of uh, a ban of uh, trophy importing in UK or in France or Europe or USA, whatever, those who support those kind of projects are the first, as the first, we, uh, who on the other hand, we don't do politics here, huh? I, I appreciate it, but, but on the other hand, they will tell you, oh, we need to be equal between white and black, we need to be equal between the Occidental world and the, the, the other countries, and so on, which is fine, and no problem. But why do they have those two different ways of thinking? On one hand, 
we have to be equal, we have to respect them, and blah, blah, blah. And on the other hand, we don't care about what they think. We just want to ban hunting in Africa and to ban impact of uh, trophy. It's not logic. It's not logic. So that's the first thing. And we spoke about it uh, with our African colleague last week. Then the facts. Yes, um, hunting uh, tourism can be, I say can be, not is, can be a, a, a very strong uh, way of getting money into countries and regions where they need the money. They need the money to build roads, they need the money to build schools, hospitals, they need the money to live, very simply. So, um, yes, hunting tourism can be a very strong support to bring quality of life to those people who want that quality of life. Um, it's not because they are living into, in the middle of the bush in Africa that they are very happy to see that uh, out of 10 children, only one is surviving. So that's one point. But, because there is always a but, it's very, very complicated to get the figures about where the money is going. And even if you ask the people from the CIC, like uh, where we met last week, they have no real figures. And you have no official figures. So for me, it's a, it's a big matter of question. If a hunter spend, let's say, 2,000, 20,000 or 200,000 euros or dollars, I would appreciate that the share of the lion goes to the lion and not in between all those people who at the end has no real added value. The added value of hunting tourism is where you hunt in Africa, in Asia, in Europe. Sometimes you have hunting tourism in Europe, in America. The money has to go to as close as possible to the people who live there. So, yes, it can be uh, an economic uh, support uh, for those people and for those communities. But for the moment, I never found the official figures that shows me that fact. As long as I don't have those figures, I have the feeling that for example, as a French hunter, if I call a hunting tourism agency in Paris, for instance, um, they will keep most of the money for them. And the people at the end where I, I will go hunting, they don't really see the big part of it. And I think that's a big pity. So when I'm hunting abroad, I always try, when it's possible, to go as close as possible to the local community where I will hunt. So I'm sure you have less people in between, if you understand what I mean. But the, the subject about 
banning uh, the import of trophy is a wrong subject. It's completely wrong subject because you you won't you won't save the elephants, you won't save the rhino, you won't save nothing, even the biotops, if you ban uh, the import of trophy. You won't save nothing because people who do it illegally, the poachers we spoke about, will continue to do it, and the people who are ready to pay a lot of money to take them home because it's their souvenir and we are not not in a position to judge if it's good or bad to take such a souvenir at home as long as it is legal i am not good so if somebody is happy to put uh, elephant tusks in his living room as long as the elephant was taken legally, the meat was used by the local community and everything was done in the legal frame, for me it's fine. Where is the problem? I don't tell you which color you should paint your house. It's not my right and it's not my problem, as long as you do it in the legal frame. So for the trophy hunting and the import of trophy, it's exactly the same. It has to be legal the money has to go to the local communities as much as possible, and then everything will be fine. And as long as we do it in that frame, we need to think about the fact that you only protect what, what you like and what you can benefit from. If local communities get money out of hunting and hunting tourism, they will accept the part of risk which belongs to live with those animals. And uh, they will accept the part of the uh, disadvantage that they have to live with those animals. Because, you know, it's very easy when you're sitting in a tower in Paris, in, in, in London or in New York, to take very great decisions about what is going on in the bush, in the African bush, okay? But when you are living there, when, when each morning the woman have to walk 15 kilometers through the bush to pick up water at the water hole, and that when they go away from home, they are not sure to come back because they could meet a lion, uh, a, a hippo, or, or things like that, you know, everything that happened in the bush. So they are not like, we are in our house with a lot of comfort, pushing a button and they have light, uh, turning, you know, and they have water, warm water, hot water, and they can mix and blah, blah, blah. So they are not living in the same world. And as long as those people are living with elephants and lions and whatever that can kill them, they will accept the, this part of risk because I know that those animals are also supporting an economy which they benefit from. We never, we should never forget about that. Um, Philip, one other question. Um, very curious of your opinion on that, because you're a hunting journalism. You were in, involved in also with with Leica and some events that they're doing. What is your view on? And this is sort of like a nice segue from trophy, from hunting trophies to trophy photos. What are your view on trophy photos, on maybe not trophy photos, but on photos of the dead animals? 
um, where is the where is the line? Because on one hand, you will go, okay, let's be honest. Like we said earlier, this is about you know we killing the animal. This is how the killed animal looks like. It's dead. It, there is a hole in it, and there is a blood. On the other hand. There's like, well, maybe it's better to not show these dead animals, right? And here's also like a difference where like whether you taking a, a picture of like something that looks like absolute bloodshed, right? Because you, you hit the animal in the heart, it bleeded profusely and, and everything was, even if everything was fine from the, uh, you know, humanitarian point of view or ethical point of view, it just doesn't look right, where is your where is that boundary? What is your opinion as a journalist? Is in a current setup uh, photos of dead animals are no no? Is it like okay you do like a big close up and make it black and white and kind of like try to present that in a you know nice artistic way, or is it this is what we do? This is how the dead deer looks like, and you know, deal with it, sort of thing. So, curious of your opinion on that. Well, the opinion is very easy. As you mentioned it, I'm working in close relation with a company called Leica Camera, and uh, it's a privilege for me because uh, we are working together since more than 15 years now, and um, they are very involved, very much involved in photography business. And they have also a small part of the business, which is sport optic that I use for hunting and bird watching. Sport optics, this is uh, binoculars, uh, telescopes, range finders, and uh, rifle scopes. And they teach me, because I was like all the young hunters and all the hunters uh, we can see nowadays in the social media, I was just, you know, I had no really idea about how to take a picture. So, and taking a picture about a dead animal is a very sensitive subject, especially when you publish it, like everybody do it now, on the social media. And the, all the world has access to what you publish. And sometimes I have the feeling that people forget about that responsibility. As soon as you put a picture on, on the social media, you have the planet can access it. And as I said, we are a minority. It was a really, really small, small minority. And so first of all, we should not share this intimate, it's something really intimate, you know, when you kill an animal, I say before, your feelings, you, it's not something you can show to, to the world. That's your moment. That's your thing. It's your animal. It's, it has nothing to do on the social media. And then, especially when you see some pictures where the animal is full of blood and the guys are like that, you know, with thumbs up and wow, I'm so strong, I'm so good. It's a disaster, you know, to, to, to publish things like that. But yes, we have to be honest, as I said before, and you can, you can, you can show. It's a way of showing it. You can show the dead animal, but obviously not like what we say, thumbs up with a rifle on the animal, with a foot on the animal, or sitting on the animal, or whatever. That's just awful, and it's not respectful 
regarding the animal you just killed, okay? But to show the animal when you carry it on your backpack or just a piece of it, or when you when you when you cut it before you to eat it, you have to to take the skin away. You have to relook the animal and so on. That's uh, the hygienic part of the treatment of the venison. You can show those things. You know, yes, it's a dead animal, but it's not just a dead animal, and you are like that. You know, uh, you're not the, the right uh, male hunter. Uh, succeeding on the beast. No, it's, that's the wrong way. But if you if you show how you cut the meat, how you take off the skin, even even how you prepare the trophy, for instance, because you need to cook it and blah, blah, blah. Um, yes, you can. Then it's not a problem because you explain something. You explain the meat we eat is, is not falling down from the sky. Before you eat meat, you have to kill the animal. Whether it's a it's a cow or whether it's a rodent, at some stage we kill the animal. So yes, the fact to explain that we kill is something which I think is important. So we don't need to to take it away. It's like you know, uh, in the old days, people were dying at home, and from the child to the parents to the uncle and then everybody was at home. And the dead man or woman was in his bed, and everybody could see what is death. Nowadays, we try to live in a kind of magic world where everything is beautiful, but now life is death, and death is life. No, that's the circle of life, and that's it, that's reality. So we can show a dead animal, it's not a problem for me, but there are some rules that everybody should take care not to shock people that are not hunters, especially in our society where death is taking beside. Yeah, that's 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 excellent. That's excellent summary. Overall, uh, Philippe, where from the point where you are, where you sit, how do you? Think, or how do you envisage the future of hunting will play out? Is this, uh, are we on a downward slope and this is just a matter of time when hunting will be gone in a society, regardless whether we're talking 10 or 50 or 100 years? Or do you think that, you know, there is an, on one hand a little bit of an, um, a wake-up call on the, in a hunting organizations uh, about what's going on and then on the other ha hand, and the hunting is so deeply ingrained into our psyche, into our um, the fabric of who we are as humans, that in one shape or form or another, hunting will survive. How do you? What are your you know like a prognosis for the future for hunting? I have no crystal ball, so it's complicated to tell you what will going on tomorrow or uh, even in one year. But um, again, as I said, you have hunters and you have hunting. So if your question is what about hunting, there is one answer. And if your question is what about hunters, it's another answer. So I will answer your question about hunting. Hunting will remain as long as you will have animals, and those animals are having... Um, 
that connection. So the hunting is a necessity to, to, to keep everything in balance because life is a question of balance, you know? Um, and, and we can see very clearly, uh, even with the human beings, uh, when you have an overpopulation, you have problems. Whether you have no more food, whether you have no more water, no more space, no more whatever, but when you are too many, at some stage, it's too much. So, for the animals, it's exactly the same. I look at what is going on with the wild boars, for example. Uh, they destroy a lot of, of uh, agriculture land. So you need, you, you, you need uh, an action to keep the balance. Regarding hunters, it's something else. Those hunters, they could decrease very strong, they could increase depending on how the society will emerge. And those hunters can be uh, hobby hunters or they can be professional hunters. But still, hunting will survive. Somebody has to do the job. Whether it's a paid job or it's a hobby. But somebody has to do it. So I'm not really afraid about hunting until hunting will remain. As long as you have animals that needs to be regulated, you will have hunting. The only question is who will be the hunters and how many do we need to do the job? I agree with that. I agree with that view. Um, what advice would you give to hunters, maybe especially the younger hunters, but then hunters in general, what should they do? Like, I'm just like teasing, like some words of wisdom from you to the hunters. What should they do to ensure the future of recreational hunting and the future of uh, hunting as a as a you know a hobby rather than only like a professional you know endeavor? I don't like to give advice because uh, it puts you in a situation where you are the wise guy who knows everything. I, I you know, I, I think humility. Humility is very important for all hunters, whether they are young or whether they are old. Very often, I have the feeling that there is a lack of humility. And that's another point I wanted to speak with you. It's the, we have one more uh, woman and dress now, and they have another approach than the maids. But regarding uh, globally, I think we need more humility. For the, for the other ones, humility um, is concerning the fact that it's not because you are hunting since I don't know how many years, 50 years or 60 years, that you know everything. That's not right, because each time when you go out, yes, you have a knowledge, for sure. When you are 60, you have a knowledge, for sure. But don't, don't stand on the knowledge, thinking that now everything is done and you know everything. Because with nature, and especially with hunting, you learn each time you go out, you have to learn. So that's for the old ones. And for the young ones, the same. Be kind and be uh, 
impregnated with a lot of humility. Because when, when I look at the social media with young hunters, sometimes I just want to cry. They are 18, 19, 20, or whatever. They are young, young human beings, young hunters. But you have the feeling they know everything. They have seen everything because they, they know how to use a smartphone. That's, that's not life. That's not life. That's, that's just a tool to call somebody or to check your emails. It doesn't make you somebody which is good, well, or a good warning. And, and uh, when you, when you, again, when you have the responsibility to kill animals because it's our goal, you need to be very low profile. Take it easy. Everything will be fine, but don't behave like a superman. Wise words, Philip. Uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been uh, really great, and I'm sure a lot of people learn a lot from you. You're welcome. It was a pleasure, Tony. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please leave me five-star rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. This is great help for me and for the podcast. And while you're already there, don't forget to subscribe to my newsletter. The link is in the description of the show. 